0: This week on the Rail Splitter Podcast, we are finally doing our second installment of the book club. Thank you, Nick. I'm just going to keep rolling with it. Now, now, now. Not five, not four, not two, just three. The Rail Splitter, axe in hand, looking out
1: at a frontier of hope and possibility. Mm.
0: Excellent. And party on, dudes! Welcome to the Rail Splitter Podcast, the Abraham Lincoln Podcast. I am your ho- co-host Mary, and joining me tonight is Rail Splitter Nick.
1: Hello, everybody in Rail Split Nation. We appreciate you joining us on this great evening, and we hope everybody is being safe
0: and real splitter jeremy
1: somebody type question marks in the... <laughs> hey everybody uh some, did people type question marks into your teleprompter
2: nick was that what that was or <laughs> my name's ron burgundy <laughs> yeah it sounded like you were kind of raising up the last syllable of all your sentences <laughs> um anyway it's great to be uh be here everyone hope everybody enjoy is enjoying uh
1: book club version two episode two all that good stuff and i'm um, looking forward to the conversation I was wondering where we were going with that. I thought maybe it could be. A, I hope everybody's enjoying this uh, world pandemic. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was a little nervous where we were going with it, but yeah. then the book club made sense.
0: I yes. I
2: was it's, not sure where it, it is weird because like, but there are a lot of things that are coming. You know, I'm a, I'm spending way more time with my family than I have in a long, long time, and it's really nice. So I feel bad saying that, but it's it's been kind of nice.
0: No, it's just not. in that
2: very specific regard.
0: It's making me, I think, come away in some ways appreciating things more and I'm learning how to live a different way. Like I'm learning, like, oh hey, I don't need to go to the grocery store three times a week like I did before COVID-19. I can go one day a week, get what I need, and I'm I'm generally okay. And the first few times I did it, I was shocked at the amount of money I was spending, but I'm like, wait, this used to be divided up over three. Um, that's funny
1: because for us at our house it's like oh we can go to the grocery store and eat meals that we prepare ourselves at home
0: yeah us us too (laughs) like we used to go out to eat like once a week twice a week sometimes just depended but we have not had a meal out or we haven't ordered takeout either in I think March was the last time end of February or something like that like it's been a while, and we're saving money, obviously, too. But, yeah, it's making me appreciate mm-hmm. things a little bit more.
2: Yeah, yeah and when you order up on local, it feels like you're doing a good deed, so yep. I'm all for that.
0: I've, I've been supporting the local breweries on a regular, being weekly basis. As, as well you should. Yes. <laughs> yes, they've been, I've been a regular customer with them. They probably are going <laughs> to guess tomorrow night I'm going to place my order for the IPA and pick it up Saturday around 1 o'clock.
1: It's it, yeah. They say right. uh, they say this crisis has basically created two sides: drunk or chunk. So <laughs> we know oh, also <laughs> yes, there's also hunk. Yeah, a lot of people get into fitness. Well, there's drunk, chunk,
2: or hunk. Well, yeah.
0: Well, I'm still keeping up with my um, regular workout five or six days a week. I haven't stopped that, so I'm I'm still keeping up with that. To keep them regular routine really really helps and obviously i've been reading too like rail splitter book club is back in i guess in session again for i guess our third installment isn't it
2: oh yeah i said it was the second one it is the third it, one we, okay. it's
0: your second one
2: i did the first the first episode of the second one yes and then you you all handled the
1: rest yes
0: so yes we are on the third installment of the Real Soldier Book Club. This is our second episode about it. So
1: we've done three book clubs and mm-hmm. three times Mary's book has been picked?
0: No, mine. we didn't do a competition the first time.
1: You probably picked it, though. No, I didn't. I, I'm going to say you did.
0: I think it was a listener who picked it.
1: Well, I'm pretty sure it was you.
0: Okay, fine. Whatever. <laughs> <You> <laughs> I'm too so tired to argue about it.
1: I think you, you may be right. Uh, she picked it. She... We'll drank out of three mugs that same episode that she picked it. No. Well, you I mean, should because that's the only way you're ever going to use all your mugs.
0: I have a whole army of mugs. <laughs> we use a different one every single day in my staff meetings.
1: What mug did you use uh, today?
0: Today, I used General Reynolds.
1: Why? don't Don't you like your mood? Dictate your mugs?
0: Um, well, General Reynolds, I just was like, yeah, keep going forward. It's Thursday kind of thing. I know that's really weak.
1: Just kind of like he kept going forward on the uh, first day of getting. Oh,
0: oh, too soon.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and Maybe tomorrow I'll use General Mead, depending on my mood when I wake up. I don't know.
1: Yeah. Let's and see. if you're not going to do anything, McClellan.
0: I do not have a McClellan mug. I have been quite slow to buy a McClellan mug to the point where I have not acquired a McClellan <laughs> mug.
2: Quite slow to buy
1: a McClellan yep, mug. To the That's point slower. where I have
0: not acquired. But tonight, I, I, tonight... I, I am upset,
1: though. Speaking of McClellan, I remember when we were in Springfield, we met, and it was like a 100th episode. Yeah. I was arguing for our next 100 episodes we should end every episode with, oh, man, we're so excited. We almost had that George McClellan episode done. And then it was gonna be a running tag <laughs> for a hundred episodes. Yeah. And you guys poo-pooed it. You know how great that would be? We'd be like seventeen, twenty episodes in. What episode are we on even right now? I don't even know. One hundred and twenty six. Oh, don't that many, dang. We almost gotta play another trip. But anyways, yeah. um would have been great.
0: Fine, we're gonna do a McClellan episode soon.
1: Nope, I just spoiled so, there it. You for go. All. I just spoiled it for all <laughs> our wait listeners. For wait for it, yeah. Yeah,
0: wait for it. <laughs> Just wait for it. Wait for it, like <laughs> Lincoln waited for McClellan to move.
1: That's all right. We better dive in the show before yes. uh, our angry two-star reviewer gives <laughs> us a one-star.
0: I agree. So, uh... for, for shooting
1: the breeze for yeah. a while. Yeah. What do you so, got do, going like, on this week? We will You're read your anything. negative. We will read your negative review on the show, word for word but we also will bring up that review for like the next 3 or 4 episodes. Yeah, That's kind of our MO on that. Yeah. So
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, okay. So today we are discussing chapters 4 through 6 of Tried by War by James M McPherson, and that will take us from May of 1862 until January of 1863. So I think we're we're about halfway through through the book and we're January 1863. So we've got two years of the Civil War left to go and three or four chapters. That's it? Yeah. So he's obviously, I think he's covered, I think McPherson's covering a little bit more detail in the first part of the book. And I think the last part of the book is going to be maybe, I don't know, not as heavy on the details than the first part was.
1: Maybe it's just because Grant, somebody competent, came in and
0: that's true. There was, not as much them, to, yeah. there was not as much to, <laughs> well, to I, discuss.
2: I do have some thoughts on that. Actually, I do have some thoughts on that when we get into the get into the to the analysis or whatever of the this week's chapters.
0: Yeah. So the major so. things that are covered in this are, you know, like we've got Battle of Antietam, got the Emancipation coming out. Um, looking at there's a lot of drama with McClellan. There's the removal of McClellan that happens in these chapters as well. Um, there was um, some stuff, or there was some stuff with um, Fremont and McDowell as well with Stonewall Jackson, which was quite interesting to read in chapter four. And overall, I felt the chapters were pretty. Like I felt pulled along through them. Like McPherson's a very engaging author. I thought. What do you guys think?
1: Yeah, he's all right. I mean, he's a good author. <laughs> yeah. I think the problem for me is: are we talking about the overall thoughts on yeah, all just the chapters? The overall thoughts on the chapters. Okay. Overall thoughts on the chapters. I felt like a lot of stuff kind of covered stuff that um, I've read in other things before. Mm-hmm. There were some things, like especially when we talk about chapter four with McDowell and how he kind of talked about that decision Lincoln made to keep him uh, those troops instead of sending McClellan. I enjoyed yeah. that, uh, but a lot of it was kind of. You know stuff I've come across or thought about or read which doesn't mean that it's a flaw in the book because I don't think the book's meant for like you know um, people who have you know do a podcast on Lincoln and talk Civil War every week so I I think it's more for a person with a common background um, a little bit more bare bones Um, but yeah I mean it definitely was not like a dry read at all no no. So my I don't know where I'm going with this. I felt like I was an ass and I'm trying to make it up for it. So I apologize, James McPherson, if you're listening. <laughs> um you are a skilled writer.
0: Jeremy?
2: Yeah, I, I um though I, I don't even know if I call it a complaint. I guess I, I liked like kind of what Nick was talking about in chapter four where he where it broke down a little bit more of the decisions as far as troop movements and stuff. My one issue I guess with chapters three. Not chapter. Uh, I guess it would be chapters three, three and four, um, three mainly, and, and just kind of so far the book overall. I was really hoping to get more into the the processes, the procedures, and the decisions that Lincoln had to make as Commander in Chief, and I feel like this is similar to many Civil War books where it kind of. Frames Lincoln's work as commander in chief into his decisions to retain or fire McClellan in the East, Mm -hmm. Um, which I'm not saying that that's important. And it is interesting to read about how he comes about those decisions and the factors that weigh into it and his frustrations with McClellan and how he didn't how he wanted to replace him. There wasn't really an heir apparent. There's nobody in the East who was distinguishing himself as a replacement. Like that's all very important, but. I was kind of excited to read this cause I'm like, Oh, this, this book has to go deeper than just hiring and firing, you know, and tolerating failure or demanding success or having faith in grant. Eventually um, I was kind of hoping more for um, how did he handle the, the logistical side of things and the political appointments and weighing all of those and really, you know, stuff I don't even know about, I guess, that the commander in chief, would do. So I was just hoping for more of that. Now, there may not be as much stuff there. It may not be as interesting because there is high drama in that McClellan firing, bringing back. I've been called once again to save the country, you know, that, you know, all of the ins and outs of their interpersonal conflicts and how the troops supported McClellan and, and how that weighed into his decision. So I mean, that is interesting stuff and is important. But I think that that's kind of how what Nick was saying, like that's. So that's a song that's been played many times, mm-hmm. and I was really looking for like other than hiring and firing major generals in the east, what did he do as commander in chief so I'm hopeful that we'll maybe get into a little bit more of that as as we move down and and I know there's some stuff included about like cabinet meetings and emancipation that kind of thing but but I feel like there's a lot of content on those specific decisions mm-hmm. um which maybe that's really maybe that's really what what it is, right you're commander in chief you don't make any decisions that are more specific than that, but um, there, there has to be some. Um, and that was one thing and, and not to get too deep into it, but like um, one thing I really, really enjoyed about Team of Rivals is Doris Kearns Goodwin goes really deep into why Salmon Chase was such a good Secretary of the Treasury, which other than Alexander Hamilton, nobody ever talks about Secretaries of the Treasury, mm-hmm. um, but, but getting the war funded and applied is was huge the huge advantage that the union had so like i was hopeful to learn a little bit about what lincoln did in that regard too along with chase and then of course stanton
0: yeah yeah the thing i like speaking of stanton the thing that i learned that i don't know why i must have forgotten it uh, maybe i just didn't know it was just how much of a hate that mcclellan had on for stanton Like, it seemed to be even more than his, um, hatred and disrespect of Lincoln. Like, it just, he was out to, like, he's sending him, like, nasty telegrams and everything else. And he seemed like, he just saw, like, Lincoln and Stanton and everybody else in Washington as being out to get him. And I'm really seeing more of, and I don't know if it's just maybe McPherson's a little bit biased in this regard, but... I'm really seeing a lot of McClellan's arrogance coming out in this and not really what he did as a general, but more it's like what kind I, of shit disturber he was.
2: Yeah. And I, I had a very similar take on that. And I, maybe it's just the timing of when we're reading it and my mindset at the time when I was reading it, but it's impossible not to notice McPherson, very much, very clearly, Raised McClellan as someone who takes no ownership for any mistakes and takes credit, all the credit for anything that goes well um, in a time of crisis, which is very familiar to us right now, um, where, you know, the reason he hasn't attacked is because he doesn't have enough troops and that's Lincoln's fault or Stanton's fault or, you know, whoever, you know. And then if, you know, his subordinates don't do well, they understand the orders or they screwed up. Things go well, he takes all the credit. Um, And then, you know, plays plays to his base. Like um, Lincoln's decision to get rid of him or not get rid of him is he's got a big group of people who would be really upset if he did. Um, and he's kind of, I think McClellan kind of created that situation where you know he's 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 polarized opinions of him, which strengthened it on one side, but of course ruined relationships on the other.
1: You know what McClellan reminds me of as a Bears fan? He's like Jay Cutler. Like (laughs) as a Bears fan, we went through all these years. You know, Jay Cutler had all like the physical tools to be an outstanding quarterback. You know, um, he can move in the pocket. He had an arm. He could do it. But at the end of the day, he just kept shooting himself in the foot over and over and over again. He could never just get the job done. Kind of pouty, too. Attitude problems. I mean, that's kind of McClellan. I feel like Lincoln knows that he has all the skills needed, probably, to be a great leader. But for whatever reason. He just couldn't execute and kept shooting himself in the foot and had an attitude problem. Uh, but this just popped in my head. So that that's – and as well, I agree – yeah. go ahead. Well, I think there's a
2: lot of parallels too. And, of course, you know who I'm comparing him to. But, like, this weird combination – we talk about how how Lincoln used it to his advantage, having a combination of humility and confidence, how, how those kind of seemingly – opposing forces work so well together for Lincoln. I think in the case of McClellan, and this is where I think he's similar to a current leader in our country, is he's supremely self-conscious, arrogant at the same time. Like those competing forces I think work against him. So like he's got this idea that he's a brilliant general while at the same time he's scared to death of this of this vastly overemphasized force on the other side. Um, and he's you know, scared and nervous, um, and then compensates with this arrogance and this projecting of blame on other people.
0: Yeah, and I mean, reading McClell like reading the quotes from McClellan in this book, is I will burst out laughing at them sometimes because I can't believe some of the stuff that he is writing to to his wife, like or just some of the sarcastic telegrams that go on between him and Lincoln um, after, especially after the Battle of Antietam. Like just this level of like not, he's like I'm not gonna do what you say kind of thing. And the other general too that McPherson discusses in this that is kind of like describes him as a loose cannon. Also, like to take credit where like where he hadn't really done anything was McClernand, as well.
1: Yeah, I mean they're douches. Mm-hmm. Yeah, That's like best way to put it.
0: And that was the one thing too that I had forgotten. Like okay, well he's dealing with McClellan in the the East. He's got McClernand in late 1862, who's upset at how he's being treated by Grant and Halleck. And McClernand writes Lincoln and says, hey, you need to help me out. And Lincoln, who's just gone through Fredericksburg and dealing with everything else, writes him back like, I got enough family problems. I don't need your shit. Sort it out yourself. And McPherson does it really well, basically leaves it hanging that this is not the last time we're going to hear from McClernand. I really like that, you know, he's he's showing that, okay, he's got McClellan here and then McClernand over there, and he's having to deal with both of them.
2: So McClernand, I mean, he, you know, he was, he's kind of known as a one of those political appointments that was, wasn't a great general, um, but I, I do like how the the book kind of helps tie a lot of things together, too, because I think it's so easy to look at. The East and the West in isolation, and very rarely do they kind of become intertwined. In the idea that Lincoln had had all of the things going on at, at at the same time, and you know, wasn't wasn't in a situation like, you know, like sometimes it's easy to think where you just focus on what whatever it is that you're focusing on um, as a student or, or whatever of Lincoln. So,
0: yeah, and I think the other thing I liked about this was in chapter five where he he discusses i think what he does he, he discusses the war side of it but then he discusses the emancipation yes i like the way that was divided up i'm glad it wasn't all intertwined i'm glad he focused on each one separately and the only downfall to chapter five i felt and this was what i thought was kind of just the only and i feel bad for criticizing him for this because it's my own bias coming in but he doesn't really talk about the battle of south mountain and that is like one to me it's a very important battle that often gets overlooked probably because i'm an iron brigade fan and that's where they get their name but he just kind of mcpherson just kind of glosses over it but i get it he's trying to cram a lot in as well i did think his um like his explanation of the battle of antietam was excellent like enough detail but then he leaves you with this whole, and this is the one thing McPherson does, like he will tell you enough that you know about the battle, but you're going to want to go learn more as well.
2: Yeah. Well, I think it's important to note also that this is a book about Lincoln as commander in chief. So like, there's only so much detail he should go into. Yeah. And I think he does an appropriate uh, amount because you have to establish why it was frustrating that uh, McClellan didn't pursue um, similar to, to in Gettysburg, mm-hmm. you know, it's important to, you have to establish like that there was an opportunity missed there. Um, and I think he does a nice job of, of showing that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and it's also important to, to note uh, because Lincoln was looking for that military victory to issue the Emancipation Proclamation. Um, you need to know that it was not really much of a victory and that, that it was kind of conflicted there and, really kind of understanding all of 1862 from the from a war standpoint, you really need to understand Antietam, um, especially as it leads into that winter between 62 and 63.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I felt like out of this chapter, too, you kind of, Lincoln finds his own in 62 as far as Commander-in-Chief. You know, his confidence and vision of what he wants to war has definitely grow, grown and evolved. Um, I think McPherson does a nice job talking about the evolution of the emancipation um, and kind of how we got there and the different things that were tried along the way you know trying to get the border states to go along with stuff um, and it talks about the emancipation I mean it was a Lincoln decision yeah he brought it to the cabinet people voiced their stuff but he was going to make his decision there um, you know he dives into Mac more there too keeping him on uh, I don't know to me i'm just so sick of the mcclellan stuff not from mcpherson just in general sick of hearing about it sick of talking about it it's like i to me i'm over mac i'm done with him uh the only thing else i would want to know that has any interest as far as mcclellan's concerned is what did he see when he was over in you know prussia russia Uh, what did he observe there that influenced his military decisions that's the only type of interest I have. Did he see something terrible that scarred him for life, that led him to be, you know, so um, hesitant to put his troops um, in the way? Outside of that, I'm done with him. Don't care. He's a douche. Wipe him off. Get rid of him. <laughs> I, 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 that's just where I stand. I'm McClellan. This is nothing against McPherson. It's all about McClellan. I think there's so many more interesting figures. That I personally, um, need to take time to look at, go dive in deeper and stuff like that. There,
0: there, there is for sure. And, and I mean, this book is, is a general overview of like, you know, bringing in the civil war with Lincoln. So you're not going to get those kind of like little out of the way characters, um,
1: Well, McClellan's got to be a character for it. Like, I I totally get it. McClellan, especially with the way he's making this, is how Lincoln worked with his his generals. He's got to be in it. Um, I think I've just burned out from reading too many similar type books over time.
0: Yeah, because he does get focused on a lot. Like, if you read Sears, Sears talks. Well, Sears has written a whole biography about him. Um, You know, he comes up quite a bit. And, I mean, he was basically a thorn in Lincoln's side for... You know how the the first part of the Civil War until Lincoln finally just was like, uh, yeah, no more. But it'll be interesting to see. And I have not read ahead yet. I stopped at chapter seven because I didn't want to get ahead of myself. I'm sure inter- you did. Yeah, no, I seriously did. <laughs> um, it'll be interesting to see how it, McPherson treats Meade um, with regards to his not retreating, or not retreating, but not pursuing Lee. And also to see what McPherson has to say about Lincoln's reaction to that. And if he's tying it back to, he well, he learned from McClellan that you got to be on these generals and and all that. But I think, too, Meade's, we'll probably see Meade's non-pursual of Lee is a little bit different than McClellan's non-pursual of Lee. Very different yep. circumstances. So I'm looking forward to that analysis and I hope I'm not hyping it up for myself but as a person who's a huge fan of General Meade I, I really am curious as to what he has to say about that
2: yeah I think it's it's an important point when you're, when the book is about Lincoln as commander-in-chief because I think Lincoln um, part of his military genius I think is he understood before anybody else that that the the tactical advantage or the not even ta- not tactical but strategic, or general advantage was the, the North's, the union's ability to produce and to just having more resources and then it was going to be a war of attrition. And, you know, this, this whole um, pursuit of a retreating army probably made more sense from like the, we need to destroy their ability to make war as opposed to controlling the field, right? Like, you mm-hmm. know, I think that these old school West Pointers are Conditioned or or trained or you know it's ingrained in them that you know you you, if you push the enemy from the field you've won the battle um, and whereas I think Lincoln was like if we can if we put constant pressure on them we need to break their ability to make war mm-hmm. inflicting casualties you know it's not a scoreboard but the more casualties you inflict they couldn't sustain the losses like like the Union could yeah. so um, I think that was what he you know the pursuit. Particularly at Antietam, was was less about like assuring this victory as it as it was, maybe maybe even just because they had lost so many resources and and men, um, to to make it worse, like to 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 put the pressure on.
1: Yeah, I think Le- Le- you bring up a great point. Lincoln was more realistic of what the cost was going to be mm-hmm. than McClellan ever was. Um, and I think there was some others as well that the book hits on outside of Grant and Sherman too, like at, like I think a lot of times we think like Grant and Sherman just had like this epiphany, like you know when they're fighting you know with the march to the sea, but like that is developed way before that, oh, you know, yeah. even before Vicksburg and stuff like that, yeah, um, that hey, this is what it's gonna take, we need to kill their will to fight. I think another thing that the book did, especially in chapter six. I have written out in my margin, sometimes shitty rigs leads to better things. Um there's this Instagram account, basically it's all these filmmakers who are like experiment like have to make shitty rigs. Like they forget their tripod and they gotta figure out a way to set it up. Basically, the argument I think he brings up a couple times is like the union had too much sources and it like resources and it hurt them at times. Yes. Because their generals always wanted more. And the South never had more, so they were forced to make do with what they had, which led them to be more creative, more resourceful, to take chances like Lee did. Um, So, you know, I found that kind of interesting as well because um, I think that happens a lot um, to stuff like that. And then McClellan, you see that a big time. Like, he knew he he could have the opportunity to have more resources, so we always settled on that instead of thinking outside the box, being creative, or just going for it, whereas the South was more likely to do that, especially at the beginning.
0: I completely agree with you, and that was actually the point I was going to bring up, is just, like, this whole, the North was always wanting more and more and more, and then you have, like, you know, Lincoln actually raised a point, like, well, look how far Jacks, he somehow found out how far Jackson had marched his men. He's like, we could do that if we cut the resources in half, and I think he was encouraging his generals, like, could you you know look at doing this but because in you know the way mcclellan had made the the army the potomac the men were so accustomed to the amount of rations they had to what they always had that to go any below that and then it also talks about lincoln
1: sorry it also talks about how lincoln's doing research he's reading about napoleon's armies Mm -hmm. which didn't have nearly the rations or the supply wagons with them So, like, the more he's learning about stuff, I I think the more he's becoming more and more frustrated with that stuff. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it is an interesting dynamic. It's
2: it's also an interesting uh, contrast that you can, or maybe even a comparison that you can make with Jefferson Davis and Abraham Lincoln, where um, I think Davis, sometimes Lee would have a very huge victory. At, a, at high cost which was his style and, mm-hmm. and Davis would be be mad at him and he'd just be like well you know we we can't afford that I mean there were times where like they couldn't afford the victory you know where where Lee may have done a master stroke of troop movement or whatever and, and it cost him ten thousand casualties and jeff Davis would be like we we can't afford ten thousand casualties casualties where and he was like what you know i won the battle What you know that's what my job is right um whereas lincoln would have been like engage the enemy mcclellan's like well we're gonna lose we don't have enough engage the enemy like this that's not we're not here to you know obviously we want to win the battle but like there's victory in in defeat much more for the union than there ever is for the confederacy
1: well there are so many political motives to why lincoln wants to Engage, you know, the time limits on the recruits. And then also bringing back to Lee, I think Lee also thought politically, especially when he goes for Gettysburg, he's looking for political movements where sometimes I don't think Jefferson Davis thought politically um, like Lee did. You know, it's such an interesting war isn't just straight up military tactics, politics plays a huge role in that. Oh,
0: yeah. Um,
1: If it was strictly just down to resources, I mean, Vietnam would have been a completely different uh scenario here in America. Mm-hmm. So um it's just fascinating when you just think about all the different dynamics, which I do think McPherson does tie in um at times, definitely.
0: Yeah, I had never really thought of it from like looked at it as like, well, yeah, the Confederates were moving with a lot less, like no wonder they were able to get to where they needed to go. And then you you know, you kind of look ahead to eighteen sixty four with the March to the Sea and, and the reason it was so efficient is the north had finally like they were like yeah we if we want to do this march and do it quickly this is how we have to do it we can't have a lot of stuff with us because we've got to be able to march you know 15-20 miles a day which is that's like Stonewall Jackson speed
1: yeah I had some notes here I was looking at that in the chapter 6 as well you know I, I think chapter 6 to me when I was reading it I was thinking like I always talk, to, like, goof out the kids. I'm like, I got to be mean to you the first week of school, like almost to the point where, like, I'm crazy mean and just kick you off for no reason. Because it's always easier to lay the law down at the beginning as opposed to being lenient, trying to lay the law down, and then, you know, loosening up towards the end of the year. And I feel like Lincoln didn't quite know, didn't have the confidence. He was trying to gain his footing. He was lenient. And then McClellan, because of pain in his ass, And then I think a lot of chapter six was Lincoln trying to regain control. Yes. Trying to lay the law down. That's where he's, you know, hammering McClellan, um, you know, being tougher on him. That's where McClellan comes into place. He's pissed at Halleck. um, You know, he's trying to regain control over his generals, which took a little bit of time. Mm -hmm. But eventually, as we all know, he gets it, Um, which, which is a sign of ultimately, you know, somebody who's learning. He's new in the office and he's never had much of a military career um, and he was strong enough brave enough and skilled enough to where he was able to regain that control over them and to lay that law down and to get mm-hmm. the ship back um, you know on course
2: yeah i think that there's a lot of there's a lot to that idea of him being new and inexperienced it's not like everybody was it's not as if you know it's similar to what the situation we're in now there's no roadmap for a global pandemic Um, I do think that there were, there are leaders who would have been much, much more prepared and there were, you know, we would have been much more prepared for it five years ago. Right. But Lincoln didn't have a, there was no roadmap for how to be a commander in chief for a war nearly that scale, let alone a civil war nearly that scale. So he's, I mean, he's writing the book on what the commander in chief is going to do. He's writing the book on how to handle more resources that have ever been put into play in the history of the world. Um, you know, and he's and he's doing all of this stuff with you know very little experience. I mean, he's basically doing it on hard work and talent. Um, and so, of course, he's going to make some mistakes. But I think that um, his combination of that political genius and military genius um, is what really sets him apart because he's he makes he makes bad military decisions that were very good political decisions, and vice versa. And I think it was all calculated and it was all with purpose and you know, of course he wasn't perfect with him, but um he balanced him. I think if he was purely purely made the correct military decisions or purely made the correct political decisions, it would have been a much more costly war and it may not have even been a victory for the Union.
0: Yeah, and I think the other thing too is like he was probably like when he was first president he's got he's faced with this civil war. I think he's probably thinking, you know, like well oh, I can't be a hard ass because then I'm gonna become come across as an arrogant Douche, And, you know, I don't want to do that to somebody who's probably thinking, like, these generals are West Point educated. They're probably going to know what they're doing. And I'm just going to kind of, you know, kind of stand back and let them. But little did he know he was going to have to be dealing with egos and personalities and fear of failure and all of that, too. I think that really played into it. And that's probably why he wasn't... um, I think he learned to be a bit more of a hard-ass with them.
1: Yeah, yeah, the big thing is he's learning from his mistakes. Exactly. He's learning from his mistakes. He's not staying the course when he knows it's going to lead to failure. Yeah. And he's big enough to understand that and smart enough to do it.
2: Well, and I think there's also a lot to to not only those things, but also that he knew that he can't deal with everybody in the same way. So the, the way he dealt with McClellan is significantly different than the way he de- deals with grant for, mm-hmm. for sure but also like Burnside and yeah you know name your general he you know and he did that politically too like his relationship with Seward was completely different than his relationship with chase which was different than his relationship with Stanton
0: yeah
2: you know so he knew how he knew to be he was a dynamic leader too in the military and in politics
0: yeah it- for sure and yet, like speaking of Burnside like I, I really liked McPherson when he brought Burnside and he really is good at you know because for the f- most of this book so far we've had nothing but McClellan and now with Burnside we're getting into a different general and it's a completely different game like this the one quote that really stood out to me in chapter six was after the battle of Fredericksburg the quote from McPherson was Burnside manfully accepted responsibility, unlike McClellan, who had always found someone else to blame. Which I thought was absolutely like you you just called it right there. They're both on opposite ends. Like Burnside was like, This is my fault. I'm gonna accept it.
2: Yeah, Burnside he's from and I like how McPherson does a good job of showing this how he was so reluctant to take command like refused to take it and was until it was basically pretty apparent that he couldn't refuse any longer and then was so quick to blame himself and to you know maybe even go beyond taking responsibility and just like being like offering to resign on his own and those kinds of things like that difference of you know that both of uh, both he mcclellan were very self-conscious but Burnside didn't have that arrogance and really didn't even have that confidence either. Um, which to me is interesting, but it's also like keeping in mind that, you know, we've got an army of, you know, a hundred thousand people and somehow he, you know, all of these people we're talking about when we talk about their flaws were pro- promoted enough times to get to be a major general or, you know, brigadier general or whatever. Like, what, what was it about their career that got them here? And then, and now we just look at all their flaws. Mm-hmm. Uh, McClellan, I think, is a little different because he had that business experience, and he was, you know, ranked high in his West Point class. So he was a little bit more destined for that that role. But a lot of these other guys, like Hooker and Burnside, and you know, guys like that, like but obviously <laughs> they did enough right to get promoted to,
0: to yeah. And and so they
2: pretty high sp- spots.
0: They did good things. Like they they were talented when they were in the lower commands. Hooker especially was that way. But all anybody remembers him for is Chancellorsville, and I really think that's unfair. And it's it's also all anybody remembers Burnside for is Fredericksburg. And we don't stop to take a look at what else these men did. And I you know feel bad. I I do especially for Hooker that they're only getting and Hooker's going to be in the next chapters, I'm sure, but they're just getting remembered for their failures.
1: Well, Burnside was put in such a bad spot. I mean, you know, as everybody's pissed that back didn't move and then he's got to move. And then like he, he was put in a bad spot and he didn't have the skills to overcome the situation he was put into.
0: No. and, And some of it, I mean, his, his plan for Fredericksburg was, was pretty good but it didn't account for what lee could have been doing and they got held up because of the pontoons because of the red tape in washington as well so some of it was just completely out of his control
1: and a lot of these battles i mean they could have shifted on a dime i mean fredericksburg they did make a you know if they re-support that left you know they're getting on the right flank of the confederates there they you know bring some troops in there and forget about murray's heights and who knows how that turns out? Like every one of these battles, that like whether they're lopsided victories or not, there's always like huge moments where it could have swung one way or another. Yeah. For, um, for who knows? You know, I mean. Yeah, the but guy- I think
2: that's that's where you see a difference in that leadership. I think because yeah. <clears throat> Lee had an eye for that. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody talks about how he was this huge risk taker, but I think he had he had an eye for those kinds of things and was able to adapt more. I think that there's you know a lot of. I, always, I talk a lot about Eisenhower's quote about how a plan is everything before the battle and nothing once it starts. Mm-hmm. Like, like I think that was part of the problem with Fredericksburg is like you, you got to adapt. Like, it, when you see that it's not working, you can't say like, "Well, this was our game plan, so you know we're going to stick to it." This is where we wanted to attack. Because I mean, help Burnside didn't learn that on the bridge when you know attack after attack after attack kept getting repulsed. To say like, "I don't think this is working. <laughs> Perhaps we should try." something else um you know because he was just trying to take that bridge yeah i think you see that similarly in in fredericksburg where lincoln's looking for somebody who can be creative be adaptive um and i think grant brings that uh, at least a little bit
1: Mm -hmm. it's kind of like being an assistant coach like when you're assistant coach you're never wrong you know (laughs) what i mean (laughs) because it's only the head coach that makes wrong mistakes and then the parents always love the assistant um majority of the time yeah uh, so, unless when you're coaching with dredge but um anyways but
2: <laughs> that is an obscure reference that very few people outside yeah. of our community are i
0: do not him. understand that at all <laughs> yeah
1: he's like the sure. nicest guy ever he's like the only oh, i coach okay. with them usually the head coach is like the bad cop and the assistants are usually the good cops not in that scenario um great guy though i don't think he listens what if you do you're, you're the man dredge uh and, you know it's like a coach It's a lot different being an assistant coach than being a head coach. When yeah, that's, those that's final final decisions are on your shoulder, you know, it's one thing to recommend changes, but when you're out there and then, you know, in the heat of the moment, and, and you see it a lot in sports when an assistant coach becomes head coach, they freeze. And I, I think that's what happened to Burnside and couldn't yeah. readjust. Yeah he, yeah,
0: he froze completely and he couldn't, I don't think he was able to delegate, which, again, it's yeah. going a little bit in the future here but Meade was able to delegate very well at gettysburg um especially when he wasn't there for for part of it um but yeah burnside just you know he had men coming to him and saying like should we do this and he just kind of blanked i think
2: i, I have a feeling that this is nick's very roundabout way of telling me he doesn't think i'm gonna be a very good principal because because i'm like the number two i I'm mean I'm, I'm that like general i'm like the burnside who's you know anything that goes wrong i can you know so it's on the principle and things that go right they're like oh yeah you work really
1: hard not true <laughs> i was in complete coaching mode because i was actually thinking how uh mcclellan's like a coach who's awesome setting up a practice yes getting his players condition but he can't do a damn x's and o's and execute a game plan so yeah. i was not thinking that
2: i know i, knew uh, you were. I know point. i know it's not always about me <laughs> so. um but I do think I do like that. Cause I, I'm always like, you know, I like the bears. So like, I always like when the bears hire a former head coach to be like their offensive coordinator. Cause I'm like, Hey, they had to do something to get promoted all the way to head coach. There's only 30 of them in the world mm-hmm. NFL head coaches, you know? So, um, there's, they had to do something right. You know, sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't, mm-hmm. but, um, yeah, that's, so there's, there's something to that. Yeah.
0: The other thing I liked about, chapter 6-2 was um, McPherson talks about all the cabinet drama that's going on like with Chase and Seward Mm -hmm. where they're both trying to like resign and Lincoln's not having any of it Um, that's actually one of my I think one of my favorite Lincoln cabinet moments when he just basically has to tell the two of them like you need to get your act together and stop being drama queens about this because there's more important stuff going on than than what's going on here
1: chapter six is basically lincoln i'm sick of everybody's shit i'm sick of it all yes get your act together quit acting like children whether it's my damn cabinet whether it's my damn generals um and if you don't some heads are gonna frickin' roll here
0: yeah and he like mcpherson's really good at talking about the the hand how lincoln handled the situation with seward and chase like outlining you know this book is about his military genius but mcpherson is still talking about his political genius too sh- showing like hey this guy is handling it from both sides and i agree with what you said nick like chapter six really was lincoln had finally he'd had enough of everybody's shit by this point
1: yeah and i'm sick of mcclellan's shit
0: <laughs> Well, McClellan's 2020
1: <laughs> still sick of his shit
0: mcclellan's gone from the book now he might make a brief reappearance in 1864
1: where he gets his ass whooped.
0: Yeah, exactly. Because he decides he wants to be president. Um,
2: but that's still, I mean, just because I like messing with Nick, but like I think that that's you can't ignore that. Like he no, doesn't you go can. away. No, he ends up be, he ends up becoming the governor of New Jersey. Like you know, we we joke about him all the time, and he's like gone down in history as being almost as bad as potentially a traitor. When like his popularity with with the military and the you know the enlistment enlisted men are is can't really be understated and Governor, I think he gets you know long term he gets a bad rap like he didn't know the letters to his wife were going to become part of the historic record. you know it's like you know he gets painted to be I, and I think it's an accurate portrayal that he's this arrogant person but like you know imagine if every text you sent to your spouse becomes part of the historic record that they analyze your character on for for centuries <laughs> to come.
1: Uh, Governor of New Jersey is no accomplishment. Just for the record. Just kidding. Just kidding, New Jersey Garden State fans. Chris Chris Christie's a big fan, I'm sure, of the show.
0: But those letters he wrote to his wife are hilarious. I've got a whole book of them. Oh, yeah. I love reading them. Some of them I'm like, wow, is this guy, like, really? Is he for real?
1: I'd almost rather read Fillmore journal entries than...
0: Oh, there's our Fillmore Ooh. reference for the episode. Almost. The Real split
1: Nation. Bold statement.
0: So I bought a book of McClellan's letters at a uh, used bookshop in Gettysburg. Oh, nice. Yep. It's edited by James Sears as well, so he throws in some pretty sarcastic footnotes. Oh, cool. In them, which is great. So yeah, I think so far in the book, Chapter 6 has been my favorite.
1: I don't know if I have a favorite chapter at this point. I'm still evaluating all of them fairly at this point.
2: I, I, I liked okay. how he how opened. Um, you know, and kind of painted the picture of what the commander-in-chief was and drew some lines to previous administrations and really showed how Lincoln was writing the book on becoming commander-in-chief.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I actually, I think I like the intro the best. <laughs> To be honest, <laughs> that's kind of what I'm talking about. You know, yeah. Really, I mean, it kind of it brings you in, in in a really powerful way.
0: Yeah, he's. I mean, it's it. I mean, overall, I'm enjoying the book. I just I don't know something about chapter six. I was really like, wow, this is really starting to pick up here. But, you know, I mean,
1: sorry. Oh no, go ahead. I was just gonna say. <laughs> This, this isn't really worth interrupting you i go yeah, it's a solid book i mean it's no book on reconstruction but
0: <laughs> Ooh, shade
1: shade
2: thrown.
0: shade thrown. um but yeah overall i enjoyed the the these three chapters um and i enjoyed the discussion we just had about it too um which we are almost at time for our show. So, um, any wrap up thoughts on these three chapters?
1: No, looking forward to the next three. Um, and definitely looking to see, um, if what they go into detail. I know me and Mary have talked about how we like cooker a lot. Um, and so I'm kind of interested to see that and kind of where it goes and how he finishes it all up.
2: Yeah. Likewise. Um, yeah, it'll be. I like you know the decision to, to to really bring Grant into the fold and, um, you know, and I I always like the transition from the end of the war. Not to bring up the Reconstruction point again, but like, you know, that that just the year eighteen sixty five while Lincoln was alive. Just you know, because the way it was that eighteen sixty four ended, that it, you know it being pretty clear that the war was going to end shortly into sixty five. Just what you know what he did in that time and, and preparing for that you know culminating with the second inaugural so um, and 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 if there's anything um, put into like Lincoln's conversations with, with grants regarding Lee's surrender and decisions to not punish um, and, and prosecute uh, leaders from the confederacy and that kind of thing or all of the leaders in the confederacy so yeah there's a lot, uh, a lot of good stuff to uh, mm-hmm. still get to
0: for sure. So, does that wrap up our discussion on chapters four, five, and six? I believe so. Awesome. So that means we're ready to move on to our weekly features, which our first one is of the people by the people. So, who would like to go first? Who's uh, prepared? I can go first.
2: <laughs> uh, yeah, My, mine is more general, just because I saw in probably ten posts today, the Lincoln-related uh, all with the same theme which I thought was cool because apparently this is a thing in 2020 believe it or not today is national uh, we're recording on the 30th of April uh, today is National Honesty Day apparently mm-hmm. so there's been a lot of really clever posts uh, about our friend Honest Abe and you know where where that nickname originated from and his legacy as being honest and um, so I'm going to collectively nominate uh, or, or bring up all of the Honesty Day posts that I've come across
1: Sweet.
0: Thanks. Awesome.
1: Yeah. Uh, mine is off to Twitter, and it came from uh, yesterday, so April 29th, which is probably two days. Well, I don't know, whenever you're listening. Christian McWhorter uh, posted, uh, basically he retweeted with a comment, uh, Lincoln's first speech will be going on display at the museum once it reopens. And the Lincoln Presidential Library tweeted out uh, kind of the first speech. Which is Abraham Lincoln made his first known political speech in 1832 after serving in the Black Hawk War. So something to look forward to once we can get back out there and visit some sites. That's awesome. Um, so it's always cool. He, one of Christian's main jobs is, you know, I don't know if it's his main job, but one of his job responsibilities is to rotate the stuff out of the cases and he always, and uh, based on talking to him, he puts a lot of thought into what he's putting out there. So that will be cool to see. I haven't never seen it. And didn't know that was his first speech.
0: It might have to be a real splitter road trip.
1: Yeah, I like it. 2022, baby.
0: yeah, <laughs> God, I hope not.
1: <laughs> I also hope not. That will. Yeah. No. It.
0: No. We're gonna be back sooner than that. We're gonna be doing a real splitter road, road trip way sooner than that. Okay, so uh, mine comes from, it's actually was posted a few weeks ago, but it was very eye-catching from Ben Holmes, who is, I believe, our listener in England, mm-hmm. and he's a listener from the early days. He got his um, book collection all together on the same bookcase. It's all like Lincoln and Civil War. I'll just, I don't know how well you guys can see it. Holy cow, yeah. yeah. It yeah. is like, it's a work of art, and I'm envious of it. But yeah, I see a lot of familiar books on there, but wow, it was just, I wish I could have my books organized that well. It looks, uh, I have various book piles in my room that I need to get on my bookshelves. Um, But yes, Ben, thank you. You have a beautiful book collection. And then our next feature, um, This Week in Lincoln, comes to us from our listener, Andrea, And she has drawn, she's been doing um, some really cute cartoon drawings. And the first one she did was of Abraham Lincoln. And I think you guys have seen it before, but.
2: That's so cool.
0: There it is. It's so cool. And she's done a few other ones as well, but they're, they're super cute. And um, I don't know, it just, in all this chaos going on, you see a lot of like negativity and all that, but this just, I don't know, it was, it just brought a smile to my face. So thank and, you. And
2: I just and another shout out to to her. She's like OG Rail Splitter. Like she was with us from the from early days. So yeah, um, it's awesome that we were able to share some of her uh, her artwork.
0: Yep. And she actually visited. Um, she visited the Speed Home right and did an interview mm-hmm. there. Sure did. As well. Yep. Yeah. She sure did. And yeah. So so Rail Split Nation. If you ever do anything like that, go to a site and interview somebody. Like, feel free to yeah let us know. And
2: yeah, we're, uh, we're we're always recalculating our budget and our travel. Our travel budget's not huge. No,
0: so. it's not. <laughs> right now, our travel—it's not our, our budget. Our travel is non-existent. It sure is. One of us cannot get to the U.S. right now because the border is closed to everything Would but you, essential traffic.
1: We should budget buy right now, man. This is time to be buying tickets. <laughs> we should go on a cruise, rail, swim cruise.
0: Oh. Uh no, uh, I was against cruises before COVID. <laughs>
1: I will say, though, if you do any interviews, make sure you're six feet away.
0: Yes. Maintain You're going to
1: need a boom pole. You're going to need a boom pole yes. for
0: that interview. Maintain social distancing.
2: Or an internet connection that's much more speedy than mine. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
0: I think we got things sorted out with that, though. So yeah. any parting thoughts, Nick or Jeremy?
2: We're just looking forward to more... Uh more uh, episodes coming your way and hopefully everybody's safe and healthy
0: yep so um on behalf of real splitter nick and real splitter jeremy um this is real splitter mary signing off um so keep walking the world with malice toward none and charity for all and we will see you all again next week